The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. The partisan political divide in the United States seems worse today than in memory. Beyond politicians' rhetoric, surveys indicate that conservatives do not much like liberals and that these feelings are mutual. Could political strife undermine the mutual trust that undergirds our nation? Why is trust so important and how do researchers measure it? And is there a possible way forward out of the strife and acrimony that is politics in America today? My guest on eConversations today can offer some expert guidance on these questions. Kevin Vallier is a professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University, where he's the director of the Philosophy, Politics, Economics, and Law program. Professor Vallier graduated from Washington University and then earned a PhD in philosophy from the University of Arizona, where he studied under the, some of the nation's leaders, leading uh, political philosophers. He did a postdoc at Brown University uh, before joining Bowling Green. Kevin has written three books, edited four books, and published over 40 journal articles and book chapters. His books include one called Must All Politics Be War? And his most recent book is Trust in a Polarized Age, which was published in 2020. Welcome to Troy, Kevin, and welcome to eConversations. Thanks so much for having me. Before we get started, uh, talk about uh, trust. Uh, um, tell us a little bit about your, yourself and your background. Well, I grew up in South Alabama, so not, not uh, terribly far from Troy on uh, Mobile area. So uh, I grew up in Fairhope. And my interests in um, uh, political philosophy really began there. Because people don't know, but uh, Fairhope is what's called the largest single surviving single tax colony. So there was a 19th century economist, Henry George, then journalist. Um, who thought that we should have free markets with respect to labor and capital, but not land. The government should own land. And uh, he wanted this to be national, but some of his followers formed splinter groups, and mm -hmm. they tried to do this on the local level. And uh, that's where Fairhope came from. It was founded in 1894, and on the, the beautiful shore uh, of Mobile Bay, there's a little obelisk that says land, labor, and capital, and gives his own uh, uh, perspective on uh, how those are to be governed. And you can still join the Fairhope Single Tax Corporation, which owns all the lands within the city limits. You get 99-year leases. Uh, you, don't, wow. you don't own it. And if you take a course on Georgia's progress in poverty, why then you can be a member of the Fairhope Single Tax Corporation. <laughs> so political well, philosophy was in my blood and so yeah, was political economy. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So, Okay, so let, let's talk about, it, it seems like our, our politics today are, are more polarized than ever, but you know, sometimes our impressions uh, can, can fail us. You know, I, you know, we start to remember how deep the snow was when we were kids, and, <laughs> and then on the other hand, we think like, oh, nothing, you know, th what we see today is completely unprecedented in the past. Is there some way that researchers can actually sort of measure polarization, and, and is there any evidence that we truly are uh, more, more polarized today than we have it been in the past. You know, there's been a lot of debate about it, but uh, it, what it's good to do is to distinguish between types of polarization in two ways. 
So the first is between elite polarization, say polarization among politicians, polarization among sort of major donors, uh, people of influence, and then just most people, and then you know all these kind of folks in between. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we can distinguish between affect-based polarization and issue-based polarization. Issue-based polarization is when we just disagree about the issues, say mm -hmm. healthcare, right? Affect-based polarization is whether you like the other side or not or you hate them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so our affect, our emotional reaction, there's emotional polarization and there's issue-based polarization. The country is deeply emotionally or affectively polarized. Um, but issue-based polarization seems to be more of an elite uh, phenomenon. But there is a great deal of hatred for people on both sides. I mean, just in 2017, they did polls. 70% of people that voted for Trump say that you know they, they, they uh, hate, basically dislike people who voted for, don't trust people who voted for Trump. 70% of people who voted for Trump said the same thing about people who voted for Hillary. Okay, So that's not Republicans disliking Hillary Clinton, Democrats disliking Donald Trump. It's millions of people not liking millions of other people solely based on uh, who they voted for. So there's a great deal of tension, of hatred, and suspicion, but on issues, most people are not as far apart as they think they are. Mm -hmm. But if, as you get to people that are very politically involved and that are very involved in sort of elite circles um, in politics, they are very polarized. And so one way in which elite polarization is measured is with the nominate index that um, that Nolan McCarty at Princeton put together, and they look at roll call votes in Congress. Um, and it looks like today there's more polarization on issues at uh, the congressional level than there has been since the Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, and so by, by the nominate index, it looks like there's a great deal of elite polarization, um, much less uh, so at the local level with issues. Um, but right. affect-based polarization does seem to be a pretty broad phenomenon. So. The other word in the uh, title of your book is trust, mm -hmm. and so uh, tell us a little bit about what we, we mean by trust, because there's some mm -hmm. different ways you can shade or, or describe trust, and those, right. those are going to be important uh, for us to, to think about going forward. So what are some different kinds of trust that mm -hmm. are important in society? So the most fundamental kind of trust that holds a large society together is what's called social trust or generalized trust. Mm -hmm. And social trust, just very simply, it's the faith that we have that strangers will follow established norms. So that, you know, I won't be physically hurt or mugged when I'm out in public, uh, that I'm not going to be defrauded when I engage in a commercial transaction, um, that people will follow the basic rules of courtesy when we're driving, um, that if I left my wallet or my phone in Starbucks, that someone would bring it back to me. Mm -hmm. um, so, it's, so there are certain established norms that seem to be rules of right and wrong that we all realize and hold each other accountable for and that we depend on one another or trust each other to follow. And that's the fundamental glue of any large society. So you know, historically in human history, we interacted with a tribe, right? A group of people that was relatively small, and this continued to be true before there were sort of urban centers where you have villages and things, and there you have a lot of trust of what's called particularized trust. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about societies that are much larger is you've got to be able to trust strangers, and that's really what social trust is all about. But we can also target our trust in particular institutions. So I talk about legal trust, which is just trust in the legal system. You know, can we trust the police? Can we trust the courts? Uh, that's easily destroyed <laughs> when you see bribes. But people tend to trust the legal system more than they trust each other. 
Mm -hmm. um, and then there's political trust or trust in, in government, particularly our sort of elected institutions and policy-making bodies and uh, bureaucracies, say like the CDC or uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. So I distinguish between social, legal, and political trust. Now, we'll get into some of these forms of trust in a little yep. more detail, but just, uh, just very briefly, trust has been declining. Mm -hmm. there, there are some measures of trust that suggest that trust is declining, at least in the U.S., mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. So, yeah. So that, that is a, a, an issue or a problem. Now, then, what are some of the, you, you've already talked about, like, trust sort of helps the uh, economy, helps a society operate, especially, you know, I guess the great society when we get yeah. outside of small groups. But you know, what does some of the research show in, in terms of just how consequential uh, trust is, like for instance, for the performance of an economy? Yeah. Like what happens in an economy when people don't trust each other? Good, so I, um, I'll first just sort of say a little bit about the consequences of social trust because there's a lot of disagreement among trust researchers about what's cause and what's effect. And uh, the trust researchers I'm most convinced by tend to think that social trust is a cause rather than effect. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it has a variety of important effects, but one thing that really, really matters for an economy is one, that it keeps corruption low, mm -hmm. so that people feel like they can trust the basic rules of the game so they can make long-term plans. Um, but another thing that really matters is that when you trust people, you're more likely to exchange with them. And so high trust societies can grow faster um, because there's a faster rate of exchange. It's also the case that in high trust societies, it's easier to form formal institutions that can make people more productive, like schools. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, social trust sort of oils the economy in a way that allows it to move at a kind of faster and more innovative clip. Uh, also with social trust, I think people are more accepting of innovations and big changes in the economy um, because they feel like the people making those changes can be trusted. Uh, right. So also, I think, and this is underemphasized, uh, you know, we think of the Nordic countries as socialist. They engage in a lot of redistribution, to be sure, but um, they're not for central planning, and they actually have very well uh, uh, protected property rights and low corporate taxes and lots of free trade. Um, and a lot of people think that this is um, because of their high trust levels. So they used to be more kind of democratic socialists in the 70s right. and 80s and so They moved away from it and they moved in a capitalist direction in a big way. Well, why? Well, it's because pro-market politicians could go to people and say, here's the argument. And people would think, okay, I can maybe trust this guy. But if you propose, say, cutting taxes in the United States, the Democrats will say, well, that's not a good faith argument. You're not making a good faith argument, who's paying you, so on and so forth. Or if the left proposes some redistribution, then the right says, well, you know, who's paying you like you're a servant of the government, you're a socialist or whatever. Um, and so it's actually, I think, easier to move in a more productive market direction in societies with high levels of trust. And then I think you know the the uh, aftermath of the 2020 election <laughs> and the charges of, of, of vote fraud in that yes. election, I think as much reflect a, a decline in trust as they do it. And I think you know a lot of concrete evidence, uh, at least to, to my impression, that, that people simply don't seem to think you know, that they can trust uh, officials in, in other states to, to run a fair election. Is, is that a fair characterization? I mean, I can't speak to the data because we don't have it yet. Yeah. Um, but um, I think it is very, very plausible that uh, low trust and high effective polarization with the other side um, led people to be very suspicious of voting in blue states. 
Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I think we would have seen a lot of suspicion about voting in red states if, um, if uh, Trump had won. Mm -hmm. uh, and because we're so polarized, um, we tend to trust government a lot less when the leader of the other party is in charge. So we have very right. polarized trust in government. Um, and so uh, I think what we're going to see is we're more affectively or emotionally polarized. Mm -hmm. um, that I think it will become a pretty regular feature of American politics, I, unfortunately, uh, to see people questioning election results in, in a, a very deep way. Now, so. um, we mentioned that very briefly that trust as measure goes down, but talk, let's talk a little bit about uh, how research goes down in the U.S. Almost yeah, no other yeah, established yeah, democracies. Okay. Really and so we, you know, let's talk a little bit more about how it is that the researchers have been trying to, to measure trust yep. over the years. So um, the chief way in which it's measured is uh, through survey instruments. Okay. And the original surveys in the United States began in the 50s and the 60s, but no one else was doing it as far as uh, I know. Uh, and the, the very first sort of question that was asked is what I call the standard trust question, and it's this. Uh, can most people be trusted, or can you never be too careful in dealing with people? So that was the first kind of trust measure that there was, was just the single survey item. And things have become much more sophisticated with time, point systems, additional questions. This is done across, uh, all across the world. It's done cross-nationally. Um, it's starting to be done more regionally within countries. Uh, so things have gotten a lot more sophisticated. There's a lot of different groups that run it. It isn't just, say, the American National Election Survey in the US, but the World Value Survey measures it. And then there are regional barometers, like the Eurobarometer, the Afrobarometer, um, that uh, get in a lot more uh, detail. The other way in which trust is measured is in the lab, uh, within trust games. I mean, I don't know um, how much game theory I can go into, but for those of you who know, it's the sequential prisoner's dilemma. Um, um, but the idea is that you're looking at people's willingness to cooperate with people they don't know in the mm -hmm. lab. And it involves games where, say, uh, you get payoffs if you're cooperative with others, but if you're not cooperative, both of you get nothing. Um, <laughs> And it indicates trust because you know you have to sort of put yourself out there with somebody else in order to uh, secure a benefit. And then there's disagreements among economists who care more about the lab results and right. political scientists who put more stock in the survey results. And there are some differences, but there's recent work finding that as you raise the stakes in the trust game in terms of payoffs, that um, the results of the trust game in the lab and the survey uh, instruments tend to converge. Not perfectly, but nonetheless. So, especially with these surveys, uh, they're showing that there's a, a there's been a decline <coughs> in the United States in, in general uh, trustworthiness. Now, you mentioned this because it's an interesting uh, thing. It, it doesn't. I guess we have less data in terms of going back the number of years. Yeah. But there doesn't seem to be a similar decline in, in other, I guess, industrialized uh, nations, right? Yeah. So this is one of the most peculiar and important mysteries uh, about uh, modern U.S. history. Um, Social trust has been measured here about two decades longer than in many other countries. Uh, but for instance, if you look at Sweden, despite undergoing massive policy changes over the last 40 years, its social trust levels is very, very, very stable. And in most established democracies, trust is, social trust is very, very stable. Um, but in the United States, we've gone from being a high trust country, where about half of people say most can be trusted, say in the, in the early 60s, to about 31% of people in 2018 saying that most can be trusted. So mm -hmm. we've seen a 23-point decline. There's no other established democracy, anything like it. Denmark has had something like the reverse, because they've gone up. Mm -hmm. But most countries are very, very stable. 
Um, now, established, they have to be established democracies. So countries that become democracies, they can often experience a precipitous decline in social trust right after they become democracies, for reasons we don't entirely understand. Mm -hmm. Spain, Portugal, Romania, uh, 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 Chile, um, and then one that I'm, I'm not remembering. Um, but social trust will just kind of collapse. I think it's because people come out from under propaganda okay. um, and they feel like they can give uh, freer answers to these questions, mm -hmm. but they also start to actually see what's going on <laughs> in their countries uh, and maybe right. they don't always like what they see. Um, so we don't know, but in terms of established democracies, the U.S. is unique uh, and it's a not a good sign. Um, so. Now, what are, you know, the, the question of, you know, what's driving trust right. is uh, an extremely complex yes. one for, for uh, I mean, economists often deal mm -hmm. with whole, whole issues of, of causation between two That's different right. factors. So, I mean, I guess probably the better way to think about it is like what correlates yeah. with, with trust? What are yeah. some of the things that we see that uh, seem to be typical of, of mm -hmm. high trust societies and then not true in, in low trust societies. Yeah, so, so, so one of the main two that I mentioned um, that I'll come, that I can, uh, uh, coming back to are corruption levels, mm -hmm. uh, particularly say in the legal system, looks like social trust helps with that. Um, it also in terms of economic growth, it does seem that uh, high trust countries are able to grow more quickly than others. Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting also is that there's more economic equality in these countries as well. So many trust researchers think if you can increase redistribution, you can increase trust because they think equality is causing trust. Um, but I think the best evidence suggests that the uh, direction of causation is the other way around. That societies that are high trust are a lot more friendly to redistribution because they're not worried about what people are going to do with the transfer. They feel like they can mm -hmm. trust people to spend the money on things that are good for them and their families and not things that are bad. Um, and so I think that's just extremely uh, Im important result because it suggests that high trust countries can both have economic growth and economic equality at the same time, whereas we usually think those things don't go together. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think social trust helps with the rule of law. And I also think um, avoiding low levels of social trust is important for psychological well-being. So consider the, the following. If you look at German trust today, West Germany, the former West Germany, is much more trusting than East Germany. And we don't really know why, but it perfectly tracks the difference in trust level, perfectly tracks the geographical differences between West and East Germany. So this isn't an uh, ethnic difference, right? A lot of people say, oh, the Nordic countries, they're, they're very high trust because they're all homogenous. I mean, Germans have more internal diversity, but why would trust levels vary dramatically between former East and West Germany? Well, here's one hypothesis. In 1989, about one out of every 20 East Germans were a member of the secret police. So you didn't know who could right. report you and ruin your life. <laughs> you literally didn't know who you could trust, mm -hmm. right? And so you go out and you think, okay, um, I'm growing up in an environment where people can report me to the police and there's not a fair trial. Uh, and so it looks like that communism is just terrible for trust, chiefly through the institution of secret police. Uh, and so that's, I think, uh, a major negative harm to psychological well-being because you don't know if you can trust your neighbors. I mean, mm -hmm. <clears throat> you don't know if <laughs> they're going to try to ruin you, like ruin your entire life. Right. Um, so I think social trust is also good for psychological well-being. It helps us to form productive relations with others. Well, and, and the, I guess that would also be an indication that you know, 
when you get in low trust, it can take a long time to get out of it. So 30 yeah. years later, uh, mm -hmm. the trust still you know, hasn't really been established yep. in, in East Germany. To it's the about 10% different. So, yeah. uh, but that's actually for social trust, given how big the effects are in terms of um, a few percentage point changes can really matter in terms of outcomes. Okay. Now, so we're, we seem to be in this, this bad situation where we're becoming more polarized. Yeah. We also have less trust. Um, bad things happen in low trust societies, yes. and so it's not a future that we should you know, look no. forward to to see uh, e even any further declines in, yeah. in trust. What, if anything, can we do to avoid this? Or are we just destined to, to even more acrimonious uh, fighting? You know, people are already describing stuff as like a cold civil war yes. here in the United yes. States. Uh, what, if anything, is there that we might do to try to start to, to rebuild trust, given that, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, so we were just talking about in East Germany, rebuilding tr trust yeah. after it's been destroyed or you know, not existent in yeah, society yeah. can uh, be a very hard challenge. Yes. The fundamental difficulty for social trust, and this is one place where my research is going from here, is that um, we just don't know a lot about the causes. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out how to restore it is difficult because we don't know how people learn to do it. Uh, and so it's much easier to talk about ways of restoring trust in institutions than it is to talk right. about restoring uh, social trust. I do think that, um, that certain kinds of police reforms and protections against corruption among uh, sort of leading politicians can help with social trust. I think people take those higher status or uh, individuals as representative of the community and if there are ways to encourage them to be more trustworthy in a public way and I think people feel like they can trust most people more. So you say, oh, I can't trust the judges, I can't trust the police. Who can I trust, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think that also is gonna measure for public health officials as well. I'm worried we're gonna see a decline because of declining trust in, in, in doctors and things like mm -hmm. that. That could be very, very bad. Um, so a lot of what you wanna do is to try to reform institutions so that higher status people or elites have incentives to be trustworthy in a public way. But that's very vague. But I can say a lot more about uh, restoring trust in government because that can change rather quickly and in a big way. So what would be some <coughs> things that, that we might be able to do going forward? Well, so one of my favorite reforms um, is uh, to lower the price of housing. So California is moving in this direction um, where it's almost impossible to be lower middle class in San Francisco. And so you have these huge hubs of productivity in the country um, that uh, most people can't afford to work in. And mm -hmm. so what happens is a couple of different things. People within those cities have zoned real estate so that um, their homes are worth a huge amount. But that's really a kind of upward redistribution because the poor can't get good jobs in the city and the rich people continue to make themselves richer and richer. But richer by increasing coercion. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is that classical liberals and conservatives can say, well, I mean, we're not gonna redistribute to get economic equality, but it would be great if we could get it by making government more limited, right? Giving people less power to control who builds where. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that with housing reform, you can get more equality, and that's because the value of people's homes will fall, but also workers will be able to move in, enjoy the higher wages that comes from greater productivity, a more extended division of labor. So income differences are compressed, but, and here's what's really cool, because 
uh, you can have more people living in those areas, the division of labor expands. And so as we know from Adam Smith, the improvements in the productive power of labor increase geometrically and not just arithmetically. Um, and so the prospects for increased growth are actually very, very large. And uh, economic growth helps the right to trust government more, and economic equality helps the left to trust government more. And so if state and local and federal governments are making better decisions about allowing for the building of housing, I think that could actually have a pretty big effect. It's not something you would think of immediately, but it is one of mm -hmm. those things I think that do, does make a big difference. And I mean, also, because I mean, you, you, since one of the role, cru crucial roles of government is to protect property rights, uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, uh, people often conflate that with trying to protect the market value of, of their That's property. Right. So when you say you're simply going to allow people to build more housing on land that they own as opposed to restricting their ability to build housing, you're not really undermining the ownership that people have or already right. have of their, their nice houses in, in San Francisco. You're not like taking their property away from That's them right. in any meaningful sense. Right. You're simply you're allowing making them freer. Yeah, you're simply allowing <laughs> other people to use their property as, That's as right. well. That's right. That's right. What, what might be some other th th things that we could do going forward? So this is something that would be very hard to pull off, but that I think would help. I would like us to go in some way to a voting system that enabled there to be more than two parties that were viable. Mm -hmm. So something more like the parliamentary voting system that we see in Germany or in, even in England. So, you know, for instance, you can vote in England for uh, a party, and then if the party gets 30% of the votes, they get 30% of the seats in the House of Commons. And so the thought here then is it makes sense to be a minority party because you can get power without getting a majority. Whereas with our first past the post rules, you know, you get 51% of the vote, you get all the power. And I think that that creates an excessively uh, oppositional politics because you get red and blue. But if we could reform voting so that we could have red, blue, green, and yellow, let's say, I mean, not that we'd have to use colors, mm -hmm. a lot of good things would happen from that. First, there'd be parties that people didn't despise, that felt kind of middling about it. So people would think, okay, you know, people who are different than me, I really dislike this party. But this other party where people disagree, I can co go in coalition with them. What's more, the public has to watch as the different parties go into coalition. And so you get to see them tolerating each other. Okay. And I think that would have a very salutary effect on polarization in the United States. If you saw politicians publicly saying, okay, to form a majority coalition, we have to do this and that and the other, and see them treating each other as human beings. Well, and, and I think that's particularly uh, relevant because, I mean, you talk about the elite polarization. That's right. And certainly that's one of the things people see that, mm -hmm. that politicians, you know, and I don't know where to start. Maybe you're going back to someone like Newt Gingrich who yeah. uh, was able to say a lot of inflammatory things when he was just a member of, of the House. That's right. And, and there seem to be benefits to politicians of, of saying really extreme things, of, of uh, criticizing other politicians. Uh, and, and they seem to be able to get more popular, they get more, uh, they get to appear on Fox News or, or MSNBC yep. more often. Uh, they probably get to raise more money that way as well, right? And jobs after they get, up there, uh, yeah. get out of office, yeah. So being a contributor on a, on a news station. Yeah, this is actually a very interesting uh, and difficult problem um, that, ha <coughs> that has to do with um, democratic norm erosion or what we call democratic backsliding. Um, where in many cases you'll have people in parties who no longer follow sort of the basic rules of the game in terms of 
the rules of sort of comedy and um, and politeness and cooperation among elected officials. And the reason is we're no longer in a position where, say, the children of Republicans and Democrats go to the same schools. So they, right. or they, they, they're on the same train together and spend a lot of time together. They live in different places. So one thing that, say, psychologist John Haidt thinks uh, that Newt Gingrich did wrong was by having politicians live outside of Washington because when they lived inside Washington, they had to sort of get to know each other, really spend time together. Uh, and so I think that what happens is your in-group, your tribe, isn't the other senators, including people in the other party. Mm -hmm. um, your tribe is your media milieu, right? And all the people that watch you and all of your fans and people who follow you on social media. Um, and so our, what some researchers call our reference network, but we mm -hmm. call our in-group, changes. Changes in a way that um, produces more polarization because now you have a, a right-leaning in-group and you have a left-leaning in-group, whereas you could have like a politician in-group which mm -hmm. sounds like cronyism, like that would be really bad, but I think it would be better than what we have now. Well, so. th th that's very uh, fascinating. It brings back to mind uh, a line I remember about Ronald Reagan you know, getting along so well with uh, Tip O'Neill and like yeah. wanting to know, uh, asking him, is it five o'clock yet? Can we go off and be friends? And <laughs> we, we just have a few seconds left. Is there anything you, know, you sort of want to wrap up as like maybe a takeaway message for us? You know, I think that we need to be thinking a lot more about um, uh, our own kind of tendency towards apocalypticism, towards extreme language, towards cruelty and unkindness, and maybe just sort of challenge people with a, a striking analogy. I think that bias against conservatives and progressives should be seen a good bit like bias against people with other religions. They have other ideologies, and ideologies are like religions in lots of ways. And I think that if we believe in religious toleration, we should also believe in ideological toleration. And oh. that because of that, I think that we need to start seeing our political bigotry for what it is. Well, thanks very much. I think that is provoking. And thanks for joining <laughs> us. Yeah. Join us again next time for another eConversations. Yeah. This has been eConversations a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Polls show that Americans are more divided than any time in recent memory. How can political division and a loss of social trust impact our nation and our economy? 
I'm Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Join me on the next e-conversations when we'll be talking about trust in a politically divided America.